Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Skiff Meetings Podcast, the podcast for curious event professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Andrea Doyle, and I am the executive editor of Skiff Meetings. In this episode entitled Cultivating Community Through Creativity, I have the pleasure of speaking with Martha Donato, founder and president of MAD Event Management and the new regional director for the newly formed North American chapter of UFI. We talk about subjects including the importance of putting attendees first, how Donato got her big break, how she paid her dues to make it where she is today, why it's important to her to be an industry advocate, and what her predictions are for the future. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation, and I invite you to check out other episodes of the Skiff Meetings podcast with tips and insights from today's most influential event professionals. You can find all the episodes on our website, or you can subscribe through your favorite podcast service. If you don't mind introducing yourself and then we'll get started. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Good morning, Andrea. Um, Martha Donato, Mad Event Management, uh, based in New York and California. Okay, great. And you're also regional director now for North America for UFI, aren't you? Yes, that's correct. So that's a new role. Um, just started about two months ago, December 1st. Regional director for the newly formed North American chapter of UFI. Yeah, you got it. Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. Yes, so it is. Very exciting. So we like to start these conversations by finding out at the point where you discovered business events. Do you remember that moment? I do. So it would it would take me back very far um, into the early 90s when, uh, like so many people that I know in our industry, I was working for a publishing company based in New York. And we went to a trade show. It was a small one at one of the hotels in in the city, maybe the Hilton or I can't remember anymore, but let's say it was the the Midtown Hilton. And I went there to a, to a publishing trade show and we had a booth, a small one. And that was my first introduction was I was in marketing in my early days. Although once you're in marketing, you're always in marketing, right? But um, my role there was to make sure the booth was set up, et cetera. And so that was my introduction, New York City Publishing's trade show at one of the storied hotels. And and the moment you were there, did you say, wow, this is an exciting industry, something I may want to pursue? 
Um, no, not really. I mean, you know, the the idea that that could be a career didn't hit me. I understood that there was an industry there, but I didn't understand there was a whole industry or that what we would call the events industry or exhibitions industry. I didn't, I didn't understand that until if I fast forward, the year was 1996. So a, a good bit of time passed where I was setting up at these trade shows when the owner of the publishing company I was working for decided that he was going to buy a distressed asset. It was a show that was being held in Chicago. It was called Chicago Comic-Con. And it had been running, I don't know, at that time, maybe a decade or so, but it was in trouble financially. And he bought it and he came back with the signed paperwork. He had the deals closed. And um, by the way, Martha, we want you to run it. <clears throat> You're in charge of marketing. This is a, we bought this for the marketing, right? So, we want you to run it. It was a very large show by any standards. Um, and it was open to the public. Wow. So um, I would say I staged that show in the summer, July of, 20, of 1997 was my first time. And I went from zero to a million. <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, to say it was overwhelming would be a complete understatement. I really was in my hotel room that night, sobbing my eyes out, completely overwhelmed. But I came back the next day and I was like, I really like this. Actually, I see, I see where I was, where my expectations were misaligned with the reality of what this is. And it goes from there. We ran that show for two years, just as a test. And then we started doing a, and we started on an expansion plan and we started building out these shows throughout the country. And so I would say it probably took me a good three or four years before I felt like I had a handle on what I was actually trying to create. And Andrea, I think the, the key piece of advice that I received at that point, don't overthink it. This is to be a people who are enthusiasts and who buy this magazine and who subscribe and who are really passionate about this topic, just build the show for them. Don't think about anything else, just build what they would like. So what do they like? They like reading, they like sketching, just build that. Everything else we'll figure out. And I think that stayed with me. Wow. That's been with me for a long time. You know, if you can tap into the why, why are people there? What's making them get up and go out to a show? then you have something. When you start managing just to the P&L and the financials and how many counts, how many exhibitors do we have, then, then you start to lose sight of why you're there and why they're there. So your instinct was just to think of the attendee first. Yep. And everything else fell into place. It was instinct, but it was also the, the management. We had a leadership group. I was in the, by that time I had risen up in the organization and I was part of the executive leadership team. And it was the editor in chief who said that to me. He okay. said, everything I put in the magazine, that's what you need to put on the exhibit floor. That's it. Just think about it like that. If there's a column, then create a, a track of programming around this column. If there, you know, so he made it very um, foundational for me to understand that these are the things people care about. I know because I measure, I'm the editor in chief. I know what people are reading. I know what the letters to the editor say. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. Really, really foundational for me. And that started with the Comic-Con that was bought, but then you expanded it into other 
themes? Yeah, well, I worked for a, a very entrepreneurial company for a long time, and it was an entertainment company. So it wasn't just magazines and events. There were other things they did as well. And he, uh, the owner was always dabbling in things in, in Hollywood. So I got exposed to a lot of different things, which was wonderful for me career-wise to have such a broad knowledge. Um, but the the other thing, we did start to get into B2B. So there were projects that were um, still call it publishing based, but more trade pubs. And then um, I did some pressers, you know, some press conferences, and um, it started to expand my area of knowledge into the B2B from the B2C. Okay. So can you tell us about your journey from starting with this distressed trade show that the company purchased to where you are today, you know, mm -hmm. at Mad Event Management. Yeah. yeah. So um, I guess like any restless entrepreneur, I got fired eventually. In 2008, it was the, uh, the really the height of the economic downturn. Mm -hmm. Times were bad. If you were in publishing, you really needed to have already transitioned to some sort of online presence, right? That was really critical that you had already pivoted mm -hmm. because by the time people were cutting all their expenses out in 2008, you had to have some online presence for them. They stopped going to buy the magazines. You know, they weren't buying whatever their passion was, their hobby, it fell away. And so combination of, um, let's call it politely insubordination and, um, and timing, you know, just really poor timing with the economy. And there were there were many, many of us who were let go in that time period. And I went on from there to IQPC, which is still a really, really highly successful company. I jumped in there right away. That was pure conference. B2B, like the most, I would call that the most funda foundational and um deep learning about why you produce a business conference. And I did that for six months and then the economics, the recession caught up to them too. And um, so by the end of the year, they did around the layoffs and I was um, last in first out anyway. So that left me at the end of 2008 looking for what to do. Okay. And so I, in 2000, late 2008, I founded Mad Event Management and I called some of my old friends who I had met over the years, and one of them being Ellen Schwartz. Ellen was the, she was my lead point person at the Long Beach Convention Center. And she gave me a chance. She told me, if you want to produce an event here, I have dates available, and we really liked working with you. And so we'll we'll let you come in. Cause I didn't have, I was a minute old, you know, I had just found, formed the company. So she gave me my big break. Oh. Another guy who who's retired, Steve Preston also, the two of them couldn't have been more supportive of me and my idea. So on October 3rd of 2009, I launched Long Beach Comic-Con in Long Beach, California. Wow. Yeah. So that was the first step. So honestly, Andrea, you know what I thought? I thought, well, a lot of people are laid off in this time. I'll pick up some consulting work. I'll set up this company. I called it event management, thinking that I was going to get maybe a consulting client or two, someone who had to lay off their team. I could step in and help them. 
and that wasn't happening either. That's why I went ahead and started my own my own event. So by the time 2010 came around, we were starting to see a lift in the economy in Southern California. And so I would say by about 2014, the show was humming along really well. And I had in fact launched a second one in the building. Um, so, but there came a point in 2011 when I did, when my phone did start ringing with people who were looking for event management support. And I did pick up some clients. One was Crane Communications in New York. And when I started working at Crane, I was just moving around to whichever publication there needed support. And I was working in the um, business commercial insurance sector. There's a very large trade show called RIMS, R-I-M-S. And I worked on that. And one of the publishers there asked me afterward, would you consider coming into Crane full time? So the long story short there is I worked for Crane for three years and ran Mad Event Management at night with their permission. Um, you know, they cleared it with the Crane family. And so I did both. Those were long days. Those were long days. The benefit, you know, the advantage was Crane's New York and Chicago based and my Long Beach activities were obviously California based. So I could I could work in the evening and that would seem or, you know, normal business hours. And you owned the show in, in Long Beach? Yes, still okay. do. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's many comic cons throughout the country, but the Long Beach one is yours. Yeah. I think that's a pretty common misunderstanding. People think that San Diego Comic-Con, which was, is, continues to be the, the most re worldwide recognized. New York Comic-Con is probably bigger, but San Diego has been around for a very long time. They've celebrated, I think they're over 50 years old. Um, and they did not, they got into a little bit of hot water with their trademark. A bunch of shows, myself included, used the Comic-Con name because they hadn't trademarked it. So it left an open field for uh, Comic-Cons to pop up all over the country that were unaffiliated, are unaffiliated with I San Diego Comic-Con. And, um, you know, they they've remedied all of that now at great expense, um, but that was the situation in those years. And um, is the show prospering today? You know, Andrea, the years that we couldn't produce it, so Long Beach was um, first closed, of course, during COVID. It was a vaccination center. Then we had the, um, the riots mm -hmm. and the um, National Guards was stationed there when things were not going well after, well, still part of COVID, but then, you know, I went there to visit to see about my dates and there were soldiers in the, wow. in the building. And then I had a date for 2021 and then the governor turned the building into a migrant reunification center. So we had no Long Beach Comic Con in 2020 or 2021. Okay. So 2022, the um, the complicating factors there are obvious, right? No, no revenue for a couple of years. But any of your uh, audience who run trade shows will understand this piece. 
in 2019, when we walked out of there, we took deposits from exhibitors mm. for the 2020 show. And I was, I was very fortunate. I had a very loyal exhibitor base and they very few asked me for a refund. They said, Oh, just hold it until you stage your next show. Okay. So by the time I was doing that in 2022, I was, uh, I was underwater before I even started, right. Because of the, the deposits from 2019 and, but I had to, I had to do it. Um, there were no other options. You know, I wasn't going to, um, not make whole my exhibitors who had been with me for so many years. So I did it and 2023 did it again. Um, I'd say it, it's, it's, it's going to survive for sure. Okay. Um, it's just, it, it's a, it's a little, it's more than a little soft until we can get back into our, into some positive uh, territory here. Well, that's an interesting example because isn't this, uh, situation many trade shows are facing this isn't yeah. unique no this isn't unique I think the um and there was a small amount of if you remember a little bit of PPP money that mm -hmm. came in and a little bit of SBA loan money um, but that didn't you know that was that was very light compared to the losses that we suffered so um you know it's a little it's it's a hamstring it's not a it's not a blood a death a death blow, but it has been challenging for sure. And you know, fortunately, we've had other opportunities that have come up in time over the over this time. Clients, uh, you know, who've been very generous and hired us, um, that helped us stay in it, right? Um, but revenue from actually producing the events has been almost non-existent. It had to, had to come from other quarters. Okay. So then you were with Crane and you were running the show in Long Beach. Mm -hmm. And so that's still the case today. So no, I, in 2014, I gave notice at Crane. I decided to leave and dedicate myself to okay. Long Beach. I saw the trajectory was very strong on Long Beach Comic-Con. It was really growing. Um, I would say New York Comic-Con had, had really broken through into less of a niche market and more mainstream okay and so there was a lot of attention in the sector as you might remember and so i just said well i'm gonna roll the dice here and stick with building long beach comic-con and it was um here's the my funny side note story so my con general contractor all the years that i've been in all the years that i had been hiring one was metropolitan expositions in um in new jersey not realizing until I had a call one day from Marty Glenn's wife saying, hey, what do you do for a living? My husband is in, I think is in the same business as you. And come to find out, Marty and I have been neighbors in Warwick, New York for a long, long time, you know, 15 years. And we we were sort of back back uh backyard neighbors and i knew his wife and his kids and she had been to the house but he was traveling a lot so didn't connect with him so wow it's i gave notice at crane we connected after his wife called and he said come in let's just have lunch and and we'll chat i have an office right in town you know like five minutes away <laughs> so i come in we have lunch and he goes hey i wanted to talk you about an idea I have for Crane. And I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry. I Today's the first day that I don't work there. 
I gave notice and I left. So we had a chuckle about that. But the long story short is then we decided that there was enough connective tissue between what I do and what he does that we should partner. So we became business partners in 2014. And that really helped me to amplify the growth of Long Beach Comic Con because I had been independent the rest of the time. And so having a partner and having somebody else who was really invested in the show, like I was, was really, really important in making it explode. And it really did. It grew really fast through those next several years until the pandemic. And, and Marty had a long career before that in the trade show industry. Yeah. Marty's been um, right out of college. He went to work for a decorator in Manhattan. He ended up working at Freeman. And then when he left Freeman, he started Metropolitan Expositions. So that was his company. Yeah, that was his company. Oh, so that's why his wife reached out and said, what do you do? Yes, yes, yes. Because um, he's the, he was one of, there were three owners. He was one of three who owned Metropolitan Expositions. Wow. Funny, right? That's an interesting story. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us about the types of events you run now? Mm -hmm, Sure. So in the last year, we've produced um, the Sustainable Events Summit at Javits Center, that was in September. And we ran that inside of the Nest Climate Campus, which is a Next Event Group production. Sharon Enright and Britton Jones own that. And we took a half day within their program to produce content specifically to how can you make your event, no matter what kind of event you have, it's a trade show conference, how can you make it sustainable? And what are the steps you need to take to get there? And so we did it as a think tank. Wow. And we had a really engaged audience there. And we will repeat it again this year. So um, that w- that's one project. And we got really good support from JIMIC, uh, Joint Meeting Industry Council, and from UFI for that. And we will again this year. And probably some other trade associations in the industry will, will support and so we did Sustainable Event Summit. We did an event called Thrive, which was a, uh, an open to the public consumer event that we put together in Atlantic City in October. And that was designed for people who were looking for what to do with the second second act in their life. Okay. And that was that was produced with really wonderful support from Visit Atlantic City. The team there couldn't have been more supportive of us doing this event. Okay, great. And you recently became regional director of North America for UFI. Can you explain how this happened and what your role entails? Yeah, sure. So back back in 2022, when Kai Hattendorf, who's the CEO of UFI, he he knew that they would be producing this global congress in in Las Vegas. He started a search to find someone who could help him on um, boots on the ground, really in the US because as you might know, UFI's based in Paris and with a team that's spread across all the continents. And whenever they go into a new country, which is every year they produce the Global Congress in another country, in another region, they they like to have somebody on the ground who can help them um, just make sure that they're they're applying the necessary cultural norms and that the way of doing business is is met appropriately, et cetera. So 
we did sign on last uh, to the summer of 2022 and that's in that vein you know really just to help them out just to be their eyes and ears here and over the course of working with the team at ufi it became clear that um we really got along famously all of us um kike was really wonderful and the idea that maybe we needed to have a chapter came from here. It came from one critical point that there were already close to 50 members in North America, in Mexico, the US, Mexico and the US, we're gonna stay there for right now, who didn't have their own chapter. So for those who haven't been to a UFI Global Congress, the first phase of the meeting is always the formal business of the association. And so they have a business meeting and the entire membership is invited. They take some votes. There's an executive committee who's leading it. They take input from the audience and then they have chapter meetings. So you would be able to go to your, if you're in Brazil, you could go to the South America chapter meeting and meet with others in your region with your regional director and talk about initiatives that are specific to your area. So at the at that point, UFI had four regional offices. They have Europe, of course, their roots, South and Central America, um, Middle East and Africa, and Asia. And the North American, the Canadian and US members didn't really have, not, not really, they, they did not have a chapter. So we decided we had enough membership that it would justify having a mem having a chapter built starting from from the ground up. So we started having those discussions in 2023 in advance of the Las Vegas meeting. And at the culmination, we it was voted on and approved at the Las Vegas Global Congress. And then we set about the work of putting together the board, which includes Laura Purdy uh, in Toronto. She's the chair. Uh, Kimberly Carson, she's at um, Toy Industry Association in New York. And um, Pepe Navarro, he's with Informa Mexico. And now the reason that uh, requires a small explanation is in establishing the chapter, we decided to move Mexico out of the South American chapter into the North American chapter to align with traditionally understood methodology of what constitutes North America. Right. So it's usually when you say North America, you mean Canada, the US and Mexico. So Pepe represents Mexico um, as the vice chair. So we have an executive committee and Marty and I are executive directors. So we actually run the office, the chapter office. And so we're only a couple of months in, um, but so far it's going really well, really exciting. I'm learning probably in the over the course of the last six months, I've learned more about how associations function than I than I ever thought. I had, um, you know, I thought I knew I didn't know anything until I got here and started doing the work. 
Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. Well, one thing comes through our conversation so far is you're not afraid to take on a challenge, are you? <laughs> no, no, I'm no, I would say I'm, I'm almost fearless, not quite <laughs> close to it, though. Yeah. And how do you balance all, all of this? Well, how do I balance it? It's um, probably that just the years of experience, Andrea, you know, that saying you're not paying me for the 10 hours I worked on your project, you're paying me for the 30 years it took me mm-hmm. to get to be able to do what you need done in that amount of time, right? So when you have an aggregate of knowledge and experience and you failed so many times and you know where the pitfalls are, I think you can move faster. Okay. I don't think there's any secret sauce to it. You know, you can, I've read every management book there is. Really what it comes down to for me is tapping into my knowledge base, the things I've done that didn't work, the things I've done that did work, and not being afraid to to fail. Give it a try. You know, I find it surprising how there's so many people out in the world who really don't understand this industry. So I thought it would be interesting to find from find out from you how you explain to friends and family what you do. Yeah. <laughs> You're right, Andrea. A lot of people, they think, um, I'm not going to say who, but I was with a prominent group not that long ago. And the person said to me, so it must be awesome planning weddings and stuff. Oh, gosh. And and it was somebody you would think would not, would understand. And I, and I didn't say I didn't correct her. And she came back to me later and she said, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. I hadn't, I didn't realize that you were actually um, running a global, that you were part of a global organization running events all over the world. I had no idea. I'm so sorry. But I think you're right, Andrea. And, the, you know, it. when I was younger and my kids were little, I can't tell you how many times my my daughters had friends tag along to come to the shows. I've always been an advocate for bringing my kids to work, especially on show site. I think it teaches them so much about the world. And it made it helped them to understand what I do. And when I have to be away from home, they understand why and they understand what I'm doing. And so I've always brought them to my shows. And then their circle of friends would, there would always be two or three tag-alongs with us at events. And even when I started to get into more serious business conferences and my daughters were older, they would put on a, a blazer and they would come and they would work at registration. I mean, you know, they... Wow. Uh, so, but but I take your point, and I think that when you say I produce events, mm-hmm. people don't really you, they just say oh, and if you say, are you a member of any association? And, oh well, I'm I belong to the dental association, this one or that one. You say, do you go to their trade show? Yes, I do. That's what I do. 
what do you mean that's what you do? They still can't, you know, it's just, it's such a vague concept for a lot of people. And that that's one of the obstacles in the industry, I believe, that it has to become something that's more understood, especially as we look to the future work, with workforce challenges. So what you did was brilliant. Bring your daughters, bring their friends and let them see. You yeah. Know. My, um, my daughter's best friend since she was in first grade ended up working for us at MAD. And then she, when she left, she went to Informa. So I can claim one, wow. one of her friends actually found it as a career path. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, I think, I think so too. <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit about what a typical day looks like and, um, you know, like what it looks like when you're on site at one of your events? Yeah, sure. A typical day is going to be, uh, depends where we are in our show cycle, right? So if we're in early days, then we're talking to exhibitors, we're talking to sponsors. Um, every day, it's a lot of phone work. It's a lot of email work. It's a lot of talking to people about what you're doing, no matter what sector you're in. So that applies if you're producing a conference, then you might pivot that and say, I'm talking to speakers all day. I'm looking for speakers. I'm doing research. Who would be good? I'm talking to my contacts and saying, hey, I'm producing this event. Do you have anybody in mind who might be a good speaker? So there's a heavy component and a lot of time spent on the research and on the communication. I would say that's all critical because until you have that, you can't dive into your marketing, right? You have to have your, the framework of what you're going to do has to be established early and then you can start your marketing. So I would say most of my days are spent a lot of calls and a lot of research. And then if I'm getting closer to the event, then it's dealing with vendors, making sure everything's in order, answering questions. There's also a really heavy, a very heavy customer communication role, no matter what position you have in the company, you're dealing with the customers um, as you get closer. They, they have questions and you have to be available to them. So that's, and then if I layer in my new responsibilities with UFI, there's a, a lot of uh, press there's a lot of interviews. There's a lot of generally just explaining what we do at UFI because it is such a new association here in the U.S. and in Canada. And it's outreach, basically. It's a lot of time talking to people, explaining what we do, and, and attending industry events. So I saw you most recently, Andrea, at PCMA. Right. So, which is a phenomenal event in our industry. I really, um, I really respect what they do there. They have such robust programming. And so getting out to those meetings and just today, I'm on my way to Amsterdam for the UFI uh, Global CEO Summit. Wow. And so that's um, just really uh, important work. It's 120 of the top CEOs in the in the industry coming together and they produce this event similar to how I described our meeting at Javits. It's it's not exactly think tank, but it's very collaborative. It's not just people on stage talking to you because the people on stage are you. The audience and the speakers are really all the same and it's just who's leading the discussion is what it comes down to. So it's a lot of travel. 
which I absolutely love and um, am grateful that I have the opportunity to do that. A lot of meetings and um, and a lot of Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> so um, Ufi is a big part of your work life today. Um, has industry associations been important to you throughout your entire career? Yeah, I was, I recently moved from New York to California for, uh, you know, for personal and business reasons. And when I was going through my things, I found my high school yearbook and I opened it up. And I think Andrea, my love of association work started very young. I was the, um, something, I forget what my position was in the student council and um, on the, the yearbook committee. And I, I've always joined things that I found interesting. So it started very young, but more recently, if we fast forward, I last year finished up a, a term on the CISO board. Okay. I had, uh, my term ended in March of 2023, but I really enjoyed that work. It was mostly during the pandemic and where CISO's voice was really important to a lot of people. And I'm proud of the work we did as a group. The, um, the board really stepped up and produced a lot of high level content, connected the members really well. And then um, I guess in 2022, I joined the IAEE New York chapter board as well. And the same thing, you know, being a lifetime, lifelong New Yorker, that really struck me as, you know, this is my home. This is my home association. And uh, so I was really proud to serve there too. I, I am still uh, serving on that board. Um, and then UFI. I had joined UFI even before we took the took this role. So the UFI relationship and being part of a global association, truly global, um, was really important to me. If I go back to what I said earlier, when I was at the entertainment company in my early career and I got exposed to everything, one of those things was international travel. We syndicated the content from the magazine into m many languages. So I would travel to international book shows and get deals to translate the content into the native language. So there was a German edition, a Polish, Polish edition, a Russian edition. So all of that um, international work started for me very young, when I was very young. And I, I've always, uh, let's say I got hooked on it early. And you're also co-founder and president of the International Women in Exhibitions Network North America chapter, aren't you? Yes, I am. So that's um, even before the pandemic, back in 2019, Awana Sipka who's um, who is the founder of Women in Exhibitions. She's in Maastricht in the Netherlands. Okay. And Marty, my business partner, Marty, had attended a meeting in England where she held her inaugural meetup. And he saw that she was doing it. And he came back and he said, oh, you have to talk to this lady, Awana. She's doing this really cool thing. So I reached out to her and I, you know, I was running a million miles a minute and so was she. And then during the pandemic, we reconnected and she's like, we have time now. Can we do something? And I, so a small group of us, it was Danica Tormolin, Stephanie Selesnick, Laura Purdy, um, and a bunch of other really committed, Courtney Harold, a bunch of really committed women. We got together and we founded the North American chapter. 
And we went on to produce monthly meetings that were really all about networking. We did that. We still do that. Um, so we, we formed it the, we formed it in 2020 in the fall and officially launched in 2021 early. So we're coming up on our fourth year anniversary of the North American chapter. And I was honored that you invited me to your get together during PCMA in San Diego. That was so much yeah, fun. I was glad you got to make it. You got to see a little bit of the, the, the core of what makes that group tick. Right. And, and there was such great synergy in the room. Yes. I can't think that I've been to so many meetups and I've never had the same group of, of women there and men. We, we it's not, this isn't just an association for, right. for women. We invite men to join us as well, but they're always different every time. So that's, what's really exciting about it is it's an ever changing group of women that you're going to meet. If it's online through a monthly meeting, which we still do the third Thursday of every month, faithfully for, for years now, or in June of 2023, Awana and Sonia um, put together an international women in exhibitions network meeting alongside UFI. It was co-located with UFI in Maastricht in the Netherlands. And there was a group of us who came from the US and it was so inspiring to be in the room with women from all over the world and I was really fortunate to be a speaker at that event, which caused me to have a little more visibility in the room. And a lot of young women had come up to me and said, can you tell me about your story? Um, you know, they they need role models, they need mentors, they need to know that the, the grind of the long hours and um, let's call it uh, inflexible schedules sometimes when we're on show site that it's worth it, that there's a payoff at the end. And so that was a really important meeting. And I think it's catapulted the association into a new, new era where there's a lot more support now from the major industry companies, um, Informa and Reed, um, ARC, they joined as um, corporate members. So all of the women in their companies worldwide are, are members now, which is really wonderful. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. How do you see events, conventions, and trade shows evolving in the future? Well, there's a lot of talk, in, including this week at the UFI Global CEO Summit, about um, evolving the model. I don't think there's a one size fits all solution. I think we have to go back to what I said at the top of our conversation, which is you have to give your audience what your audience needs. You have to tap into their why. And if their why, you know, it's very different if you're producing a medical conference and you're and you're talking about um, academic papers than it is if you're producing a Comic-Con and people really want to be entertained. And I don't think that if you have a formula and mm. you just, this is how we do it, that you're going to be able to make it in the next, the next five years, you're going to have to be much more in tune with what your audience is looking for. You have to survey them. You have to talk to them. You have to, you have to measure where they're going and why they're going there. And there's some really good research that's coming out in support of that, you know, I, for me, as I said before, it was always an instinctual and a marketing background sort of touch and feel on that. 
But now there's some hard evidence that's coming out to say, yeah, you, you really have to talk to your exhibitors. You have to talk to your attendees. Your sponsors have a really integral role in how you build this out and they can provide some really cool experiential elements. You just have to go to them and talk to them and collaborate with them on what your sh the new look of your show. And the I think the walking up and down the aisles is going to going to fall away. I went last week. I was very fortunate to go to the PGA show in Orlando that was produced by Reed. And they had so many cool, there was uh, virtual reality displays. The There were not just aisles to walk up and down. It was really, the people were putting, people were swinging their golf clubs. It was really interacting and engaging. And there was a murmur, like a buzz in the room of excitement. Wow. So it's more activations now than booths. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, some, some companies still need to have a booth. That's just the way they're wired and that's okay. You ha you can do that. But as the, I'm speaking from the show organizer point of view, you have to have the blend, right? You have to offer a little bit of everything mm -hmm. or, or if your customers don't want a little bit of everything and they want, and they're a very narrow, their focus is very narrow, then that's what you have to deliver. How can you tell if it, an event is a success? Is it all about measuring ROI or or are there other signs that you look for? Yeah, there are other signs that you look for. There's the, you know, the influencer and the social media piece is very important in a lot of sectors now. And so if you get really good buzz online, that's mm -hmm. going to help you with your next iteration. And mm -hmm. if you can tap into influencers in your sector, that's going to go a long way. And if you if you create some exciting short video content, that's what people want to see now. Um, and how do you how can you measure it effectively? Um, you know, we've got event organizers. We do basic P and Ls, right? Here's the money in. Here's the money out that it costs to produce it. And here's my margin. And all of our expense lines have increased in cost. Since we came out of the pandemic, um, there was some research that came out from Freeman. You'd have to double check me on this, but I think they said the average increase is 23% across the board. And attendance is is still good. It's strong, but that cuts into your margin. So how do you measure success? I think you measure success by am I going to be able to do the next version of this? Did, did I experience enough interest in what I'm doing to make it worth producing the next one? And I think a lot of shows are saying, yeah, this is, people want to get together. There's also, you know, Andrea, the, the idea that when you go to a show, you can meet with your team, right? A lot of us are working remotely now. I think you work remote. I do. Yes. Yeah, I do too. And so the idea that you can go to a show, there's an, uh, an un unintended consequence in a good way of the pandemic that a lot of people started working from home and they couldn't meet together anymore. But now you have an event, you meet up and some shows are offering like a conference area where you can sit with your team for a couple of hours and just do a team building exercise or a meeting because you're all there at the same mm -hmm. time. Or maybe they do it on their own, maybe at the hotel, they get a suite and they meet. But anyway, the the value of an event has taken on a lot of new meanings. And so that makes it even harder to quantify whether or not it's a success. Um, you know, from a, 
ROI point of view, would you be able to, I'm, I'm thinking out loud with you, would you know the value of a company being able to meet up, the team to meet up on site and talk about aligning their goals for the coming year? You might be, as a show organizer, you might be outside of that, but nevertheless, that's really important that it's happening. Right. Now that's interesting. What trends are you most excited about? Well, we've got the sustainability, okay. obviously, really important. Um, I've been educating myself on that. There's a lot of work to be done, mm -hmm. but there are also a lot of good resources. So the sustainability piece is really important. What I just, what we just talked about before, innovation and um, bringing your show to to what it needs to be for the why is really important. Um, the DE&I is very important for our industry. And you touched on the talent piece a little bit. Um, you know, that's a critical path, right? Where a lot of the industry is aging and we're not bringing in enough new people at the, at the high school and college level to meet demand. So that has to be a focus as we move forward on talent, to letting them understand what we are as an industry, like we talked about just before. Uh, educating them and then showing them that this is a legitimate career path. What's your advice for event professionals just coming into the industry and for event professionals looking to advance their careers? People just coming in, I would say there's a, do you, are you familiar with the show um, Money 2020? Yes. That's a really big, important show. And I think the learning from there, I, I took a look at that and I saw the, the young lady who runs that show doesn't come from a background necessarily of producing events the way we grew up in it. And so she comes at it from a totally different point of view. And I think that the value of young, doesn't have to be young, let me be careful with my language, <laughs> new people, coming into the industry can draw from their experiences and bring it to us and teach us some new things or let us understand better the why for why we're pro uh, producing our meetings. And that's critical is to invite the the new voice. I think if you look at what Hervé Sedki, the CEO of Emerald is doing, he was from the um, his background was American Express, right? Okay. You know, very mainstream finance background. And he started to bring in some key members of his team from that background. And, and I think it's been very influential to them to have that different voice in the room. So, and then in terms of those of us who've been doing this for a long time, I think the critical path is just to go to other people's shows, look at what other people are doing, ask questions. Don't assume that because you've done it a certain way for a long time, that that's the right way to do it. And, and that's collaboration. There are so many of us who are willing to have those conversations with our peers, be it the ones we've worked with for our whole career or new people that are just coming in. Um, we're eager to have the conversation to learn what should we be doing differently? What are the opportunities for us to grow? Um, and, and so that's the, that's the way I see the, the next five years is going to be collaboration. And how do you see the current AI evolution impacting that? Well, it's going to, there's no question about it. And I should have mentioned that. And when you said, what are the trends? That's a huge one. Yeah. Um, 
I've been using it personally and professionally. I, I find it, um, you, you know, here's the thing for me, you still have to do all your own work, mm-hmm. but the ability to take your work and plug it into an AI portal and see what comes back is in, in one way, it's really fun. Right. And in another, it's really enlightening to see what comes back to you from, from the world, right? Because uh, AI is an aggregation of all the knowledge that that is, has built from, I don't know how they put all that stuff together, but they know a lot, right? When you put it into an AI chatbot, you get a lot of information back. And then, so that's one side. And the other, I have had really solid success using customer service chatbots to get answers to questions that I used to have to get on the call, get on a call for. I find that really effective for the basic question. And I think that frees up a lot of time for event organizers. If you can have a chatbot answering your customer service questions, or at least 80%, mm-hmm. that frees up a lot of time for your team to not have to be answering the kind of, what time can I move in? I'm an exhibitor. What time can I start my load in? Or I'm an attendee. What time is the reception? Those questions can easily be answered by chat bots now. So I see it as a as a production improver. I, I think That's... our I think it's positive. I know a lot of people have legitimate concerns about it. I understand those, but I'm trying to look on the bright side that it is going to be really helpful with productivity and okay. creativity. Yeah. Okay. And like you said, it sounds like it's saving you some time. So you could use that elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you could change one thing in the events industry, what would it be? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. I think it, because I'm so steeped right now in the sustainability piece, I Mm -hmm. think it would be that we were farther along on our sustainability efforts that that we had some solutions that we have that we were implementing or had already implemented um you know the single use plastics and badges and badge holders and carpet and um booths that get torn down and thrown away you know that's where we have work to do and so i would love it if the change came in that there were some vendors some suppliers who said i can help you um, we do have some who are really good at this, but I think we just need more volume of people who are expert in this and who can say, I'm going to audit your show and I'm going to tell you all the things you could do. That change would be really meaningful. What What do you feel the real value someone gets out of face-to-face meetings? The real value is the intangible, right? You can't... Mm-hmm. You, you don't know serendipity. You don't know what you're going to end up talking about when you're in, when you're in, in a room with somebody and you're sitting and talking with them, the conversation takes all different tracks. And so I think it opens you up to get to know people better and understand what's making them tick or, or them to understand you better that you just, I mean, video calls have been our a lifeline for all of us, right? And I don't take anything away from them. They're really va- incredibly valuable. But um, at the time when we started doing video during the pandemic and we couldn't meet, I realized more than ever, you just have that one-on-one meeting 
with somebody in person that's just different than mm -hmm. online. Right. And I don't think we have to pick one over the other. I think we can have both. Okay. And I know that there's been a lot of consolidation in the in the online event industry, right? There was a big push that we should be doing all of our events online and we're going to save carbon footprint if we meet online and we don't fly to events and all of that conversation. And um, I had been on the on that conversation back in the 20 teens when I was at Crane, they were working on online. They were very early adapters to online meetings. Uh, so I had the very strong feeling that it was a temporary state of being and that people crave being able to just be around people and get the energy from being around people um, in person. And I think that's what happened. And so now there's a reset. The online event companies are not going away because that's still a really important component for a lot of people who can't travel, um, who don't want to travel. You can offer both and both have different value. Um, but I, I'm a, I'm a people person. I love to be around people. So for me, that's always number one, but that's, it's a personal choice, right? Right. What is your proudest accomplishment? Oh, my daughters. Okay. My daughters. Yeah. I have three daughters. They're, um, three couldn't be any more different from each other, but they're absolutely my proudest accomplishment. All three of them are phenomenal people. Well, that's wonderful. And what is the one thing people would be surprised to learn about you? <laughs> um, probably that I grew up in upstate New York on a farm. Really? And, uh huh. And I, I, I live. I grew up on a working farm, and I didn't visit New York City until I was eighteen and in college. And as soon as I went to my first visit. I was hooked and I moved shortly thereafter to New York, but I did grow up on a farm, an actual working farm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> if you had one piece of advice you could give those just starting out in the industry, what would it be? Find a mentor, okay. find somebody that you can go to for advice when things feel like they're not right. Like when you, when you get that, um, this doesn't seem right have somebody you can go and say, this is what I was just taught, or this is what I was told. What do you think about it? Can you explain the background? Because a lot of the things that we do intuitively have a really solid basis in reality for why we do them, but nobody stops and, and explains unless you ask them to. And we always end our podcasts by asking our guests, who should be our next guest on the podcast? And what should we ask that person? Um, the next person you should have, I would suggest Jeff Dickinson. He's at DMG. He's the, uh, he just took over as the president of the executive committee of the board of UFI. And he has a really interesting background too in events. He's, um, he's a really, really smart uh, a businessman. And I would highly recommend that you you get in a conversation with him. What would be one question I should definitely ask him? You should probably ask him the same question about AI. Okay. And, uh, and how he sees that it's going to change because his sector is quite different from mine. He's more in energy. And so it comes back to that idea that 
every sector has its own personality, its own DNA, and what's his? Um, because you know that's a that's a critical path. Energy without energy, we're in big trouble as a planet. So, right. Well, this has been such a great conversation, Martha. Always such a pleasure. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you at another show soon. Absolutely. Thank you again. Okay. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.